Poole Couch Podcast is a weekly conversation with Dr. Lakeitha Poole, a licensed professional counselor in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, about all things mental health and personal growth. The Emerald Couch Podcast is the go-to pop site dialogue for self-help, good laughs, and real talk. This podcast is not meant to be a substitute for seeking support from a licensed mental health professional and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. For more information about counseling and therapeutic services, or for assistance in connecting with a therapist in your area, visit our website at www.smalltalkcounseling.com. Let's start the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Emerald Couch. This is your host, Dr. Lakeitha Poole, back for episode 44. So thanks again for joining us. And as always, thank you for your continuing support um, and your feedback. Um, we always love hearing from you guys about episodes that you love. Um, I know it definitely helps us to keep knowing which direction to go in, which topics around mental health you're most interested in. So we appreciate all of you um, for tuning in every episode. Um, as always, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Um, and I know we've talked about the rating a lot. We've done really, really well thus far, but I really would love to see more ratings for us on Apple Podcasts. So if you listen to us there, um, and even if you don't, go on Apple Podcasts, rate us anyway, and let us know how we're doing. Um, and so that other folks can find us. And then of course, make sure you follow us on social media, on Instagram, that's at Go Small Talk Counseling, um, and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash small talk counseling. And then everything is all summed up together on our website, www.small smalltalkcounseling.com. Um, and you can share on your social media pages um, if you enjoy what you're hearing. So episode 44, um, I always like 44, like the number now more than probably ever before because of like Barack Obama, Beyonce loves the number four, Jay-Z loves number four. Um, so obviously this episode will be pretty special just because it's two fours, it's double the four. Um, so just being able to um, talk about a little bit about the fact that it is still May, so um, it's still Mental Health Awareness a month. Um, and we are typically getting closer and closer, even though here in Baton Rouge, it feels like we're already in summer, but we're getting closer and closer to the summer months um, and the summer season. Um, and that's usually filled with a lot of like time spent with families, more vacations, more activities outdoors, all those fun things. Um, but oftentimes we get into the lull of summer and forget about our self-care and our well-being um, because in most cases, we're actually filling a lot of our time with seemingly self-care activities, but planning vacations are stressful. Um, if you work in a industry where you don't really get summers off, that too sort of doesn't necessarily feel like a break, like it does maybe for other people in the world. Um, so just making sure that you are um, thinking about what it looks like to maintain a sense of well-being and self-care during this time. So that kind of brings us to our topic um, for today, um, particularly because most people spend a little bit more time with family during this time, um, probably 
The next closest would be for the holidays at the end of the year. Um, I think focusing on family, but the unique part of our family um, and the connection to mental health this week is important. So today we're going to talk about fictive kin um, as a protective factor. And so for people who don't necessarily know what fictive kin is or um, fictive kin relationships, these are those relationships in which you might consider someone family, um, even though you are not related by blood. And so this is not sort of like, you know, a step sibling or parent, but more so um, the bond, the emotional, spiritual bond between um one or more person and you um, is so close that this person has become family. And so um, for the majority of the history of the term fictive kin, um, we've seen it used more so in ethnic cultural populations, ethnic minority populations. Um, and particularly in the black community, you will hear terms like, you know, that's my auntie. And so that auntie might actually not be someone's aunt, but their mom's best friend um, or their dad's best friend if it's their uncle or something like that. And so um, just being able to sort of recognize that, you know, those terms, while typical familial terms can actually be used um, to describe family members that are not truly family members by blood, but family members because we actually chose them to be. So um, I want to talk about how having fictive kin in your life can actually be a protective factor, particularly as we go into the time of year when people are spending more time with their family, um, but recognizing that a lot of folks don't always have um, true blood bond family that they could actually spend this time with. And so really being able to tap into who um, and where those people are in your life is our focus for today. So I want to utilize an article and believe it or not, it's actually not a Psychology Today article. I know um, you guys are probably shocked and in awe, Um, but I actually wanted to reference a research um, article that I came across a while back, um, even when I was working on my own dissertation, talking specifically about fictive kin and relationships. Um, I had a whole part of my dissertation research that focused on that particular group um, and its importance, um, particularly because I was studying African-American families um, in particular. And so I want to highlight um, one of the articles, which was entitled Racial and Ethnic Differences in Extended Family, Friendship, Fictive Kin, and Congregational Informational Support Networks. So we're not going to talk about all of that because I know it's a really long title, um, but I definitely wanted to um, shout out um, Dr. Taylor, Dr. Chatters, Dr. Woodward, and Dr. Brown um, for their contribution to um, this topic, because I do think that this was a really great article and a useful um, tool. And I think all of them are social workers. Uh, so kind of kind of in the mental health field a little bit um, in thinking about this, but really just thinking in general about someone's involvement with like kin folk or kinship um, and non-kin is sort of an essential component of daily life for most of us. So family and friendship support networks are actually really important um, for coping with ongoing stresses. And you guys know this because we've talked about that before on the show, but daily life comes with all kinds of craziness. And so providing um, a source of support that's external to you in the form of another interpersonal relationship can be really helpful. Um, we've seen Fictive can provide everything from a place to live when somebody's maybe confronting homelessness to coping with the physical and mental health challenges that come um, 
when stresses come in life. And so these folks play a really, really important role. And so I want us to just kind of talk about it a little bit today. So just thinking about ethnographic research a little bit, um, sort of, again, that history around fictive kin, they've become these really, really important sort of informal networks, um, particularly for African-American families. Um, and so these folks, again, are individuals who are unrelated by blood or marriage, um, but just regard each other in those kinship terms. And so fictive kin kind of get the same sort of rights and status um, as blood family members within that family system um, and are sort of expected to like participate in the duties of being an extended family member. So for instance, I have, you know, aunties that I call my aunts, but they're my mom's best friends from college, from growing up in her old neighborhood. Um, and they've been in my life since I was born. And so they definitely feel like aunts. And so of course they end up taking on the duties and the roles of extended family. So when I had birthday parties or when I opened my practice or when um, we're celebrating something really big, or even during sad times, like family funerals, um, they're there as a part of sort of our network and our family and treated as such. And so what we kind of see um, in particular um, through some of these ethnographic research studies that there are actually different types of fictive kin that can include everything from even like peer group members. Um, and this probably usually happens more with like teenagers and um, young adults who sort of adopt people into their families. Um, even, you know, when we go off to college, um, that's sort of part of that, that like initiation into like family life. They get to become a part of who you are. Um, this could also though include like godparents, um, which might be the friends or the best friends or close friends of parents. Um, of that, the child that they are godparents for. Um, but then this could also include, you know, more like social aspects like church members, um, people who you see weekly, maybe um, more than once a week, um, who also have sort of either adopted you into their family system or you um, into theirs. And so just being able to really know that there's not really a limit or a, I guess, boundary around what fictive kin looks like, but just being able to sort of understand what that looks like. So for instance, like when we we think about members of a church network and we're, we're talking in terms of... Um, Kinship, when we're addressing somebody from like our congregation, we usually use these terms brother or sister, um, or the term like church family. And so in some instances, members of fictive kin networks, um, and those congregational support networks can actually overlap. Um, but the same thing applies, like if it's your college friends or if it's, you know, your parents' friends from their childhood, it's, it's the same. Um, and there's a lot of overlap there. So um, what often doesn't happen is this sort of identification of these non-kent networks and these sources of aid. So our friendships, um, our church networks. And so it's really important for individuals who may be emotionally or geographically distant from their actual um, next of kin or um, true blood family members to kind of have these. In these circumstances, these non can folks um, kind of function as supplemental sources of assistance. Um, they kind of 
uh, aid in being able to provide, um, you know, just emotional support, affection and closeness, um, helping you get through maybe negative times. Um, and so it's really important to kind of know um, the level of accessibility that you have to these type of people, um, because when tough times come, you need to be able to call on someone. And so, of course, as we always make our connection to mental health, um, having interpersonal relationships that provide positive reinforcement around um, adoptive ideas and um, positive changes is really, really good. But also recognizing that maybe you have gone off to school or you've moved for a job and you're in a new place and you don't have that network created. And so it's really, really important to figure out how to start creating that. And for some people, it's easy to do because maybe they live in a neighborhood or a place um, where you have all different types of people who sort of like take you into their family system. Um, but in other cases, you may live in a place that it's much more isolated and you don't have that opportunity. And maybe you have not yet found sort of the social networks that you want to create um, to find those people. And so just really important that when we think about both Ken and non-Ken relationships and networks, um, they're usually characterized by, like I said, a ton of different factors that are really important for assessing how suitable they are for you, um, how accessible, how viable with regard to providing support. Um, information of this kind is pretty crucial in developing um, what these look like. And so Obviously, knowing that you might have a lot of interaction with somebody, but the level of support that you feel like you get from them might not be enough for what you need. So just paying attention to that, or you might not um, get a ton of interaction with someone, but actually every time you talk to this person, um, they're able to provide you with emotional support or even financial support or whatever that is. Um, and so just making sure that you identify those that have the greatest potential for the development of um the support networks for you and maintaining and sustaining your mental health. And so just making sure that as you get involved with those networks, that you're just sensitive to um, your individual preferences, but also if you're encouraging maybe somebody else, maybe you have your kinship network built in, um, but you know someone who doesn't, just be sensitive to the fact that their needs are going to be different. Their family system that they grew up in could be something that they actually want to duplicate, but they also could um, totally not want to repeat any form of what their family system was like growing up. And so just making sure that if you're offering advice around that as well, um, that you are offering appropriate advice that is also considering circumstance. So just a little I guess, mini thought, mini session um, on the couch today about how to create this, particularly during a time, again, where many people are spending more time at cookouts and family dinners and family vacations. Um, for everyone, that's not always their daily reality. And so just being able to figure out ways to create that for yourself, if that is not your reality, um, is really important. And so just make sure that you tap into all forms of family and kinship during this time of year. Um, find ways to regroup and refocus on your mental health goals. And of course, just have fun. Um, practice your self-care. Get out in the sun a little bit, not too much, because um, it is really hot here. Um, but just making sure that you are taking good care of yourself um, and finding ways to make family um, a major part of who you are and what you have going on. So just a thought about fictive kin um, as a protective factor. And so we're going to take a quick break right there and we'll be back with our signature segments.
Hey everyone, we are back with another episode and our second half of our show. Um, so we are going to kick off our pop psych moment of the week. Um, and so today, if you're listening to this on the day that this is coming out, it is Memorial Day. Um, and so first of all, thank you so, so much, so much thanks, so much love, so much appreciation, so much honor to the many men and women, um, who gave their lives for our freedom, um, and right to live fulfilled lives, um, here in this country. And so of course, um, we honor those who have lost their lives today. And I know we have Veterans Day in November, but of course, to the men and women who continue to serve um, in that capacity as well. And so, of course, we'll honor you again in November. But thank you to all of you. Um, and thank you to the families of those who are our fallen soldiers, um, our fallen men and women um, who've given their lives because you too end up sacrificing for us as well. And so we appreciate and honor you today on this Memorial Day as well. Um, so I wanted to actually highlight Memorial Day a little bit as our pop psych moment of the week um, because I think there's been in recent talks um, and on the internet um, a buzz around sort of the the true I guess founding of Memorial Day and what it looks like and I just thought it was interesting and would be interesting for us to talk about um, and what most people don't know is actually one of the earliest Memorial Day celebrations um, was held by freed slaves most people assume um, when it was sort of signed into law as a federal holiday, that that's when it kind of got started, but that's actually not true. Um, so the story that is told goes, um, sort of this idea that at the close of the civil war, there were freed slaves, freed slaves, um, in Charleston, uh, South Carolina, um, who were honoring their fallen union soldiers, um, just in general. So not just, um, African-American soldiers, but just anyone um, who was in that area. And so Memorial Day sort of kind of ended up being born out of necessity. So just the general history of what we kind of get in our textbooks and what we maybe learn in school is that um, after the American Civil War, um, the U.S. was forced with the task of sort of burying and honoring um the almost 800,000 Union and Confederate soldiers who had died um, in what's obviously today still one of the single bloodiest military conflicts in American history. And so the first national commemoration of Memorial Day was held in Arlington National Cemetery on May 30th in 1868. And so both um, Union and Confederate soldiers are buried there. Um, and so that's sort of the more formal history that we know. Um the sort of not even I hate to use the word opposing, but um, the more extensive history that we've now learned um, is that there was actually um, this initial burying, like I mentioned, um, that occurred in Charleston, South Carolina to honor 257 um, deceased Union soldiers who had been buried in a mass grave. Um, in a Confederate prison camp, actually. And so they, um, these freed slaves dug up the bodies and worked for two weeks to give them all a proper burial, um, as a gratitude for fighting for their freedom. And so together, along with teachers and missionaries, um, many of the black residents of Charleston organized a May Day ceremony that year, which was covered by the New York Tribune, um, and other national papers at that time. Um, and so these freedmen cleaned up and landscaped all the burial grounds and, um, 
sort of put it in an enclosed, more formal place um, and build an enclosure with an arch that late that was labeled Martyrs of the Race Course. And so nearly 10,000 people, which were mostly freedmen, um, gathered on May 1st um, to commemorate the war dead um, to sort of create this this honoring of them continuously. So the controversy is about whether or not um, this then became an ongoing tradition, which evolved into Memorial Day. Um as the original date of what we know, um, or was this war a one-time thing? Um, I think in either case, obviously recognizing those who have fought, um, for the freedom and of all, um, is very, very important, but it's also very cool to know that historically some of the ways in which we have come to know, um, our celebrations that we have, there's a little bit more detail to them and, 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 and inclusion, um, of other, forms and types and backgrounds of Americans who were involved in creating some of the holidays that we now know and love and get to celebrate ourselves. So I just thought that was a very interesting um, story and background, particularly, again, we talked today about this idea of fictive kin and sort of taking people in and taking people's causes on um, that may go beyond what blood bonds can actually do and just being able to connect with someone in order to support them. And so I thought this was befitting um, on Memorial Day today, but as well as as our pop psych moment of the week to really think about um, what does it mean to you know know your history, but to also be able to understand um, the need that we still have for um, recognizing the contributions um, of all Americans to what we know to be um, this country that we live in. And so that is this week's pop psych moment. Um, and so hopefully you learned something that you did not know before. Um, last up is our small talk bookshelf. So as you can probably start to tell, um, I'm on a little bit of like a binge reading course around like business practices and marketing, um, specifically for mental health professionals. And so, um, this week's small talk bookshelf. Um, so this is for my clinicians that are listening for people who aren't, I'm sorry, but this is what I'm reading. And I always tell you guys what I'm actually reading. So, um, I am currently reading. Marketing for the Mental Health Professional, which is an innovative guide for practitioners. Um, it was written by David P. Diana. And so this book, what I like about it, and I'm not quite finished yet, I hopefully will finish this week, um, is packed with useful strategies that have kind of worked for many, many years in the business world. Um, and David Diana has now taken these strategies um, and formatted them and factioned them differently um, for mental health professionals specifically. And so he kind of guides all of us as practitioners through our own like resistance to business practices and some of those things that we don't question um, about business because we're practitioners and we either don't have knowledge about them or we um, don't feel as comfortable being forceful um, sort of in the way that business folks are. Um, and so he really just breaks down some of those beliefs about marketing, about money, um, and even about the counseling professional in general and what we are supposed to do. Um, and I use that term loosely and in quotes um, because he really just helps to kind of make that clearer um, through this this guide. So what I have enjoyed thus far and some of the points that I've taken is um, recognizing that there is a lot of opportunity for advancement and for growth um, and success in the mental health profession, particularly for those that are in private practice, but also beyond that and thinking about how to even better manage, um, you know, departments if you work for an agency or if you work for a university. Um, marketing for the mental health professional really just helps you acquire and apply those like proven 
sales and marketing techniques and strategies that you kind of need to create um, a thriving mental health practice. And so um, he gives like real life stories. He offers helpful tips um, and really just gives some guidance on how to um, develop those strategies to like engage your clients and build credibility, um, earn people's loyalty. Those are, again, things that I know for sure I did not learn in school. Um, and so really just understanding how to kind of use the power the influence and like persuasion that um, you might have as a practitioner to also create that within your practice. And so um, just a practical guide and anyone who's looking to kind of achieve long-term success in the field of mental health, again, more so in private practice, um, it just really gives some different ways of thinking. And um, I really just find it useful. So I hope that if you are maybe not even a mental health practitioner, but some form of helping professional and you're trying to maybe go at it on your own and you're interested in some tips and tools that you probably would have not gotten in school because these are all sort of like business related things that we just don't think about and we're not taught. Um, it probably is a useful tool for you as well. So Marketing for the Mental Health Professional, an Innovative Guide for Practitioners by Dr. David P. Diana um, is what's on my small talk bookshelf for this week. So friends, that brings us to the end of another episode. As always, I appreciate you guys for tuning in. Um, if you have questions about this week's topic or others, please make sure that you reach out um, either through social media or through the website to submit your Ask Dr. LP questions. I would be happy to answer those for you. Um, so please send them our way. As always, thank you so much. Um, we have so many good things ahead. I'm super excited as the summer approaches because the next time you guys hear my voice it will be in june um so just looking forward to what's ahead make sure you like follow and subscribe um submit your questions and i will see you next time right here on the emerald couch